Good morning, my name is Brad Birkin, and I am part of the staff team here at Forest Grove Community Church. And for about the last four months, we've been walking through the book of Romans, and we've been slowly taking a look at various sections of this letter to, from Paul to the church in Rome. And uh, over the Easter uh, week, we looked at, uh, on Palm Sunday, we, we were at, in chapter 8, and on Palm Sunday, we saw just this uh, explanation of the role of the Holy Spirit and the power the Holy Spirit grants us. And then we continued in Romans 8 on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday as we looked at even just how all of creation was groaning under the burden of sin that it was placed on. And then we took a couple of weeks off and did a few different things after Easter. And then last week, uh, Bruce uh, was here and, and preached to us from Romans chapter 9. And as he introduced this section, uh, if you weren't here last week, he explained that Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 uh, were this kind of a, almost feels like a bit of an insert, where Paul stops for a moment and explains, so what is the role of the nation of Israel in God's plan now in the New Testament? And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go online to listen to that sermon as Pastor Bruce explained to us as he, as he kind of dug into that, what is the role of Israel? And one of the conclusions we made is that the role of, is, of the nation of Israel, or the nation of Israel, still has an important place in God's overall plan. That the role of Israel still has an important place, an important part to play. But we also saw a bit of a tension raised in chapter 9, verse 6, where we read, No Not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. So on the one hand, we acknowledge that the nation of Israel still has an important part to play, but Paul explains that not everybody who was born into this nation is truly part of God's people. And so we start to feel a bit of this tension that it's not only about lineage or heritage or family. There's something else involved. There's something else that becomes an important part of this salvation story. And that's where we pick up in chapter 10 as Paul continues to explain this and explore this. And so today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 10. And we're going to look specifically, spend some time in verses 9 to 15. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And I thank you for your scripture that you've given to us. I thank you for this book of Romans that we've been going through and how a letter written from Paul to the church thousands of years ago can still be so true and alive and active and relevant for us today. And we thank you for that. And as we explore this passage today, I pray that these be more than just words on a page, but that the Holy Spirit would truly liven these words for us and make them true for us. Praise us in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have ever heard the word nominal or used the word nominal? Is that a word you know? Yeah, let me know. The word nominal is a word that I've always heard in the context of meaning very small. And so how it might be used is uh, someone might say that um, although the protesters did the best, their impact on the election was nominal or they had nominal impact on the results of the election. Or you might say although they didn't follow the recipe exactly, the resulting uh, cake, or it had nominal effect on the resulting cake, meaning a very small amount. But there's another sense of the word nominal. According to the Collins Dictionary, they explain it this way. They say, you use nominal 
to indicate that someone or something is supposed to have a particular identity or status, but in reality does not have it. One more time. You use nominal to indicate that someone or something is supposed to have a particular identity or status, but in reality does not have it. And then in order to make it a little more clear, the dictionary actually gives two uh, sentences that use the word. And the first one was this. It said, as he was still not allowed to run a company, his wife became its nominal head. In other words, he wasn't, for whatever reason, allowed to run the company, so he puts his wife in charge, and although she has that title of head of the company, she really doesn't have the status or power of it. He's still running the company. If any of you ever watched the uh, TV show Arrested Development, that's the premise of the whole show. (laughs) One person watched it. Where Mr. Bluth can't run his company anymore, so he's slowly giving various family members the role of head of company, but none of them really have the authority or power to do anything because they are nominal leaders of the company. And then the dictionary actually gives us a second sentence to help us understand this, and this is the sentence. It says, I was brought up a nominal Christian. That is what the dictionary gives as a way to describe this so that we can all understand it. They've decided to use the phrase, I was brought up a nominal Christian. And if we go back to the original explanation, that means I have a particular identity, or I'm supposed to have this identity of being a Christian, but I don't really have it. It's not truly who I am. And I found that, first of all, the fact the dictionary would use this as an example, but even that phrase, a nominal Christian, I found to be a really powerful descriptor. You see, we live in a society where, and I tried to get some stats, and, and, and they're kind of all over the board a bit, but in Canada, depending on which survey you look at, somewhere between 60 and 75% of Canada still would associate themselves or self-identify as being Christian. And I actually thought that number was high, but they said based on surveys, that's how many people would self-identify as Christian. But when the question was asked, is your faith important to you, less than 20% of people responded that it was a very small percentage of those people actually said their faith was important to them. And so it's this idea of nominal Christianity. We we want to identify with it, but we don't have that true status and power. In reality, that's not really who we are. And Paul addresses a similar concern that he sees in the nation of Israel. And when we begin chapter 10, we read, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know, the, I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Paul's saying Israel has this enthusiasm, they have this zeal, this excitement for God, but it's misdirected. They're actually rejecting what God wants them to do and and following their own path. And and so in a great way, we can actually sort of see them as being a nominal Israel. They're nominally God's people. They, They have the identity, they have the title, but they're really not living that. That's really not who they are. We see that Israel was misdirected in how they believed that they would become right with God. And so that leads us to ask, okay, so what is the right way to become right with God? What are they missing out on? Another way of putting this, 
what is required for salvation? If we want to boil it right down, what is actually required for salvation? And that's what Paul addresses in verses 9 through 15. And I'm going to begin with just verses 9 and 10 here, where Paul begins to explain, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. As I was going through the PowerPoint slides on this that were put together, I actually noticed there was a slightly different, uh, it's still the New Living Translation, but there was a couple different uh, years where they made slight changes, and they actually changed it from confessing to openly declaring to help us understand what that really means. And so Paul basically breaks it down into these two things. In order to be saved, we need to confess and believe. Pretty simple. But I think to truly understand that, we have to understand, okay, what would that have meant? What would, that have, what would people have thought of those phrases, confess and believe, in his original audience? And let's start with just the idea of what does it mean to confess Jesus is Lord? In the first century, the term Lord was used for anybody who was in authority. It was a sign of respect for somebody who was in authority, someone who you had to submit to, who you lived in submission to. And so it was a, a popular word in this first century. And, and even in that sense of the word, we need to confess Jesus as Lord as being he is the authority in our life. That we, when we confess Jesus as Lord, we are saying we desire to, we commit to living a life that is in complete submission to him, that we surrender all to him, that we've made him, we've placed him in that place of Lord of our life. Now, we can't make him Lord because that's a role that he has, but we say that we are submitting to you in that position. We are submitting to you as Lord of our life, that we are going to live a life in fully, full surrender, and that works in this context but we also have to realize that there was another sense to the word Lord that, Lord that came out after Jesus' after Jesus's resurrection. And as the apostles used the word Lord, they actually use it to also uh, reference Jesus' deity. So not only is he an authority figure that we submit to, but they actually begin using this word as Jesus is Lord, as meaning Jesus is God. And they are a way of declaring that. And we see that in a few places in John 20, verse 28, where Thomas uh, uh, sees Jesus after the resurrection, and he declares, My Lord and my God. And in Acts 2, we read, So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. And so it's referencing in these cases, and as we read through the apostles' writings after the resurrection, the word Lord means more than just any authority figure, but it's actually referencing that Jesus is God. And so in light of that, when we're told to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we are actually publicly declaring that we believe that Jesus is God, and we are publicly declaring that we want to live a life in complete submission to him that we want to live a life that is fully surrendered to him in all areas. That we are all in for Jesus. Douglas Moo, uh, a commentator, writes, the confession that Jesus is Lord is one of the most basic 
distinguishing marks of being a Christian. And one of the reasons that it is comes out of this fact that calling Jesus Lord is declaring that he is God. And there are other religions that believe that Jesus was a good teacher, that Jesus was maybe even a prophet. But a distinguishing fact of Christianity is we declare that Jesus is part of the triune God. And we have to be willing to publicly declare that. And so Paul tells us, so we are to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. To Paul's audience, the idea of the resurrection or the idea of being raised from the dead wasn't talking about this one. We often think of that as the one event of Easter Sunday, that Jesus was raised from the dead, the resurrection. But to Paul's audience, they would think of the resurrection as being this whole description of the saving work of Jesus, particularly through that last week of his life. And so when they say, talk about believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, they're also talking about the fact that you need to believe that he was falsely accused, that he went to trial, that he was executed in a horrendous way for our sins that he was buried and three days later rose from the dead. It's covering this whole act that is the reason that we have salvation. It's the way that we can have forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus. And so we're told that we need to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And the fact that he uses this word heart is a way of saying that it's not just believing it in our mind. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement of this. But we have to believe it with our whole being. We need to believe it with all that we are, with our emotions, with our minds, with everything we are. We believe that he died for our sins and that he rose again. And again, this is a distinguishment because there are people who who might even say, yeah, I, I, I believe Jesus died. He's a historic figure. But it's more than just a head knowledge or acknowledging that. It's a matter of that we live a life based on that fundamental belief. As we go on to verse 10, we see that Paul reframes this in a little different way. So in verse 9, he said, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And now we flip it around and say, For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. One of the reasons he does this is if we move back to verse 8, Paul had just quoted a verse from Deuteronomy that said, the message is very close at hand. It is in our lips and in your heart. It is on your lips and on your heart. And so the first time he gives this statement, he does it in the same order. Confess with your lips and believe in your heart. And then he says the same sentence again, reversing it, because this is really more of the chronological order of what happens. We tend to believe in our heart, and out of that belief in our heart, we're ready to declare publicly and confess that. It's hard to publicly declare and confess something that you haven't yet believed. But I also found that this was one of the the troubling statements that I needed to come to grips with in this passage. I found that for me there was tension in the phrase, it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. In other words, it is by publicly declaring your faith that you are saved. Or, if you're not willing to publicly confess your faith, you are not actually saved. And that was troubling to me. Because that wasn't really my understanding of what salvation, what was at the heart of salvation. 
And yet when we look at that statement in the context of the rest of the book of Romans, and even when we expand it out further to the context of all of Paul's writings, I don't truly believe that that's what Paul is saying is at the very center of salvation. I I don't think he's saying that if you don't publicly declare your faith, you are not actually saved. When we look at the rest of the writings, belief seems to be that central part. And throughout the writings of the Gospels and throughout this, we see that it's belief. And so it makes me ask the question, why is Paul saying this? Why did he choose to write it this way? What was his intention? And I think Paul is assuming here that if a person is saved and is in a saving relationship with Jesus and is truly believed in the resurrection with everything that they are, as we spoke of, that publicly declaring that is going to be a natural outcome of what it is, and it's going to be so closely linked that you can't really pull the two apart. For him, believing in our heart and publicly confessing that are so closely related that you can't even really pull them apart. Because when something good happens to you, you want to tell people about it. When someone gets engaged, it takes about 3.4 seconds for that to get on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, everything. Everybody knows. Why? Because they're excited, and they want everybody to know. When somebody has a baby, same thing, pictures everywhere. When somebody has a grandbaby, try to talk to them in a sentence without a phone or photo album coming out of the purse. It doesn't happen. you got to live with them every moment of the first rollover and the first this and the first, the first steps and the first word. Why? Because they're excited. And they want to share that with you. And Paul's saying, if we get excited about the good things in our life, then we should be excited about Jesus. And if we're excited about Jesus, we shouldn't be able to help ourselves, but to want to share it publicly. We shouldn't be able to help ourselves, but want to publicly confess it to anybody who will hear that Jesus is the Lord of my life. Because this is the best thing that has happened to me. A great first step in this is baptism. One of the core reasons of baptism, that Jesus asks us to be baptized, is baptism is a public confession of what we believe. It's standing up in front of a group of people and saying, I am all in for Jesus. I am fully surrendered to him. I live in complete submission to him, and I want my community to know that. And that's one of the the core pieces of baptism. And so if you are a believer, if you follow Jesus with your life and have never been baptized, I ask you, why not? And I encourage you to consider that step, that step of obedience, which is really what it is. Again, when we look at the time of the the apostles, the New Testament church, believing in baptism were so closely linked that usually they're in the same sentence. He believed and was baptized. He believed and was baptized. He believed. They're just completely linked together. And so I encourage you to take that as a step in publicly declaring your faith. But I also want to encourage us not to think of that as the only one. So if you have been baptized, it's not like we can check off, okay, I believed, I confessed, and I'm done for today. Because it's not how it works. It's not this one-time thing that we confess that Jesus is Lord and we're done. It's this continual outflowing. Again, you go back to this example of a parent or a grandparent with a new child. They don't tell you once, hey, hey, look, look, I got a baby. And they're like, okay, let's never talk about that again. We've covered that. They constantly want to tell you about this growing relationship they have with that child. And in the same way, it should be something that continually grows out of our relationship with Jesus. We should continually want to 
tell people about that. Paul goes on in verses 11 to 13. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's an amazing promise that we're given. And again, we have to understand this phrase, call upon the Lord, a little bit. This isn't just a matter of asking God to save us. Calling upon the Lord in the Old Testament and into this time of when Paul was writing was understood as being like exclusive worship of. It was this absolute, full uh, worship of who he was and identifying as that, him having that role in your life. It had a lot of the same tone of this idea of when we talked about confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It was with everything that you are. And we see this as one example in the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. If you remember that story, Elijah and the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. And uh, uh, the, the prophets of Baal build this altar and put a sacrifice on it. And Elijah builds an, uh, an altar and puts a sacrifice on it. And, and, and this is what he says in 1 Kings 18.24. Elijah says, Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people agreed. And if we continue to read the story, we see that the prophets of Baal, when they called on their God, it wasn't just, hey God, give us some fire. They worshipped their false gods. They worshipped Baal with everything they wore. They spent all morning worshipping and praying. And when they saw nothing, they started literally cutting themselves with swords and knives and giving blood offerings to Baal, saying, please, please show us that you are the true God. It wasn't a simple calling on the name, but it was just worshipping with everything you have. And if you know the story, nothing happens. And then Elijah comes and he he has them three times pour jars of water over the sacrifice. And then he calls out. And as he worships God and calls out on God, God sends down the fire to consume everything. Calling on the Lord is this idea of worshiping with everything we are. And he has anybody who calls on the Lord, anybody who is fully surrendered, who is fully bought in, will be saved. And again, we want to view this passage in light of its original intent. Going back to the beginning, we remember chapters 9 to 11 are beginning to address this idea of, so what about the nation of Israel? And in 9 6, we had that, that reminder that not everybody in the nation of Israel will be the true chosen people of God. And so we, we see here that because their zeal and their enthusiasm was misdirected, not all of them were truly the people of God. Israel was relying on their name. They were relying on their heritage. They were relying on their family as being enough to grant them salvation. We are the nation of Israel. We are the chosen people. And they put all of their reliance in this heritage, this upbringing, this name. And I think that we sometimes have that same tendency in our world today. And it's one of the things that's led to this idea of nominal Christianity. We identify with people, identify with Christianity simply because, well, my family was Christian. Or I grew up Christian. And I think we can fall into that same trap right here in our own church. We have this MB heritage, and I think our MB heritage is a very powerful thing. And so I'm not discrediting this this strong Christian heritage that goes back many generations in many of your families. But it's important for us to acknowledge that our MB heritage does not provide us with salvation. 
Regular church attendance doesn't provide salvation. Belonging to the right family and growing up in a Christian family does not provide salvation. Having Christian parents, the right family name, none of those are the things. Now, those are great things. I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, in a family that has a long Christian heritage, and I look at that as being an incredible gift. But that in and of itself is not what provides salvation. Salvation is available to everyone we see here, but only if they are willing to live a life of submission to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's a personal choice that each one of us has to make. And it's an all or nothing. You can't be half in. You can't be a nominal Christian. There's really no such thing. And so maybe you have been living as a nominal Christian. Maybe you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to surrender to Jesus and live a life that's all in. Maybe you're just sensing that call of the Holy Spirit today. Maybe you've attended church your whole life, but you've never truly confessed that Jesus is Lord. If this is where you're at today, we would love to talk to you about this. We would love to walk this journey with you. And I encourage you to come talk to a staff person. Come talk to the person who's sitting next to you in the pew. We love to see people enter into this journey with Jesus and begin this relationship and grow in this relationship. And so if you're sensing this fact that, you know what, I've come to church my whole life, but I've never truly surrendered, let today be that day and begin that journey. As we continue in Romans chapter 10, we reach these verses in 14 and 15. And this sort of gives us sort of the outflow of our salvation. This is what flows out of that salvation. And we read, but how can they call on him? So we've just read, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul begins asking these questions. Many of you have heard these before. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. So he gives us these list of questions basically saying, how are they going to call on his name unless all of these things happen? And he kind of looks at it in the reverse order. And if we flip it around, if we flip the order of his questions around, we basically end up with a statement that says, we need to send people to tell others in order that they might hear. And their hearing will lead to their belief and their belief will lead to people calling on the Lord calling on the Lord in that Old Testament sense, calling on the Lord in full worship with their entire life. Paul has a longing to see Israel come back to God, to see Israel acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. We see it in 10 verse 1, which we read earlier. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. Last week in chapter 9, it started similar, uh, in a similar way, even more intense, where Paul writes, With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Talk about longing for people to come to see Jesus. There's a worship song from a number of years ago, and the chorus of it said, Break my heart with the things that break yours. It was a prayer. Lord, break my heart with the things that break yours. And so I ask us this morning, do our hearts break 
when we see people around us rejecting Jesus? Or do we just look the other way? Whom do you know who's currently seeking meaning and purpose and direction in their life? And in what practical ways could you share with them that Jesus is really the answer that they're looking for? Do we break? Do do we have that longing for the people around us to know about Jesus? So we began by talking about nominal Christians and nominal Christianity. And what's the and it really doesn't exist. You can't really be a Christian in name only. That's just really not an option. So what's the antidote, antidote to living as a nominal Christian? I believe the antidote is not only living a life in complete submission and surrender of Jesus as Lord, but also to live a life publicly confessing our faith in Jesus to those he puts into our circle of influence. Even as we look at this passage, it talks about who will tell them and who will send them. I think we're all sent. Just some of us are sent to our next-door neighbor, to the person who works across the hall from us at work, to a family member. Being sent doesn't necessarily mean being sent far away. I'm going to call the worship team forward as we conclude. By reading this passage, Romans 1, 14 to 17, from the message paraphrase. This is how he words it. He says, but how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anybody going to tell them unless someone's sent to do it? That's why the scripture exclaims, a sight to take your breath away. Grand processions of people telling all the good things of God. I love the way he phrases that. A sight to take your breath away. Grand processions of people telling all the good things of God. My prayer this morning is that our church community, that our congregation here at Attridge, that our Broadway congregation, as we begin a new congregation in the Silverwood area, My prayer is that Forest Grove Community Church would be a grand procession of people telling all the good things of God.